Hi everybody, I'm Peter Jacobson, and welcome to Jake's Takes. We had a very interesting last week on the LPGA Tour and the PGA Tour. We had a first-time winner on the LPGA Tour in Australian Hannah Green. She won the KPMG Women's PGA Championship at Hazeltine National Golf Club, the site of the victorious United States Ryder Cup team back in 2016. The KPMG Women's PGA was Hannah's first win on the LPGA Tour, and she gutted that out. She won by one with an up and down from a bunker on the very last hole, knocked it up pretty close, and made one of those knee knockers four or five feet to win, which always shows a lot of guts. Whenever you watch somebody get it up and down on the last hole, you know they've got They've got ice water in their veins, and Hannah really showed me something with that win. And over on the PGA Tour, Ches Reevy, who's been playing extremely well of late, he won the Travelers Championship at the TPC River Highlands, which was his second win in his PGA Tour career. Eleven years ago, he won the 2008 RBC Canadian Open. Interesting, he had a six-shot lead heading into the final round but his lead was cut to just one shot with two holes to play. Keegan Bradley was coming on strong, but Keegan made double on 17. Chez made birdie. Chez ended up winning by four. Interesting. I always say that players play well in stretches. Chez played really well at Pebble Beach the previous week at the U.S. Open, tied for third, and he's, he's such a consistent player. He's now up to 12th in the FedEx Cup point list, and he's not long off the tee, but but this is this is one of the players who really you should keep an eye on if you worry about driving distance and how far the golf ball goes. He is he's not long off the tee, but he is number one on tour this year in driving accuracy. I long debate with people that the golf ball goes too far. You've heard me say that on this podcast before. I worry so much that we're going to no longer see par fives in golf for PGA Tour players. There are no par fives in golf for the PGA Tour, but a guy like Ches Reevy puts the ball in the fairway more often than anybody else, and he gets it done. So congratulations to Ches. Back to Hannah for a second. One of the toughest things to do when you turn pro and you join the Tour, LPGA Tour, PGA Tour, is to win. There's a bit of a process, I think, in winning. You've got to go through the hassle of understanding what it's what it takes out there. I know when I came out on tour out of Portland, Oregon, and the University of Oregon, I wasn't a very good player. I really didn't know how to play. But over the years, I, I watched, I learned, I listened, which led me to my first win, just like Hannah did last week. Then the challenge becomes number two. You've got to win your next one. Everybody always says, Anybody can win one tournament, which isn't true. It takes a lot of skill, a lot of determination to win one tournament on the PGA Tour. But to win again, that's really the key. That's what sets you apart. And then, as you can understand where this is going, once you win two, you want to win three, and then four, and then five. And you look at how good the competition is. It gives you an appreciation for how good players like Sam Snead and Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus and players with multiple wins are in golf. That's that's the thing that sets these great players apart are the number of wins and how how much they beat the other players by. 
Think back to when Tiger won the U.S. Open by 15 shots at Pebble, or he won the Masters by 12. That, to me, that's, that's dominating the field with your play. But the last thing you want to do as a professional player is to put too much pressure on your game, too, much, too many expectations on what you're supposed to do. You're really not supposed to do anything when you're on the tour. You like to think that you're supposed to win every week. You like to think that you're going to play well every week and make the cut and be in competition and have your name on the leaderboard. It, it, just, it just isn't true. The most important thing to do out there is to build a great foundation of consistency. You really have to understand your game and know how to fix it when it goes south. Nobody plays well at all times. And that's certainly something that you have to understand and accept. Players go through the peaks and valleys just like any other business, any other sport. You really want your highs to be really high. And you don't want your lows to be too low. But it's going to happen. What you can't do is start panicking and putting expectations on your game because then you feel like you're in quicksand. The harder you struggle, the deeper you fall. Most important thing is to realize that you're a good player. You've built a good foundation. You have a good short game. Look at the positives in your game. And Ches Reeve, as I said, he may not be long, but he sure hits it straight. And I still believe that playing from the fairway has a lot of advantages than playing from the rough. So use that confidence, use that understanding, and use it to your strength. But don't ever limit yourself with expectations. If you think about players that when they join the tour and they have quick success, sometimes you can get in your own way. You've got to realize that every round of golf, every tournament, it's a new day. And you have the opportunity to wake up and in your mind, be the best player in the world at that time. You can't think about yesterday. You can't think about last week. You can only think about today and moving forward. So congratulations to Hannah and also to Chez. You guys are both on your way in your, in your careers. In this week's Jake's Takes podcast, we're going to be talking to John Padani, the new CEO of Arnold Palmer Enterprises, about a new campaign they're launching to celebrate the life and career of Arnold Palmer. When I first met Arnold Palmer, I was a rookie on tour. I had just qualified to play in my first PGA Tour event, which was the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. Back then, it was called the Crosby Clambake, 1977. After I Monday qualified at Old Del Monte, I ran out to Monterey Peninsula Country Club to play a few holes before the sun set into the Pacific. And I was out there on the course, played a few holes, cut across to the 16th to play in. Hit a few tee balls, turned around, and who was walking to the tee from the 15th green but Arnold Palmer. And I froze. Well, Arnold could have big-timed me. He could have come up and said, hey, kid, you're a rookie. Get off the tee. We're playing through. Not Arnold. He walked right up to me, stuck out that hand, and said, hi, I'm Arnold Palmer. Can we join you? So that was... A pretty incredible moment for me because Arnold, always the gentleman, always the inclusive guy. I felt like I made a friend that day. Arnold Palmer was my father's favorite player. I had grown up watching him play on whatever limited TV access we had back in those days. But wow, that made me feel like I was 10 feet tall when he did that. I'm also going to reminisce with my daughter, Kristen, about the time she was there to watch me win 
my second Travelers Championship in 2003. People ask me all the time, why, why do I play a yellow ball? Well, it's pretty simple. Because I can see it. I can see it in flight from the tee all the way to the landing spot. At my age now, 65 years old, I lose the white ball in flight. When Strixon started making the Z-Star yellow ball and they put it in my locker, I gave it to my amateur partners thinking, ah, you know, I'm not going to play this ball. But when they put it in play, I could see their ball and I immediately jumped on board. Whenever you switch to a new golf ball, you're always worried about how that ball is going to fit in with what you do and how it affects your game. I play it because it does everything I need it to do. I'm always thinking about proper spin, proper trajectory, and the maneuverability of a shot. With the Strixon Z-Star Yellow Ball, I can curve it left to right, I can hit it high or low, and it has that perfect amount of spin for my game. It's been about 10 years since I put the Strixon Z-Star Yellow Ball in play, and I've never looked back. You've been here before. The Arnold Palmer organization is launching a new 90 for 90 campaign to celebrate the 90 years of Arnold Palmer. Uh, it's going to be 90 moments from Palmer's life and golf career across social media, leading up to Arnold's 90th birthday, which is coming up on September 10th. And I'm pleased now to be joined by John Padani, the new CEO of the Arnold Palmer Enterprises and president of Arnold and Winnie Palmer Foundation, Arnie's Army. John, thanks for thanks for joining us on the Jake Takes podcast. And why don't you tell us a little bit about the 90 for 90 campaign? Yeah, thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, we're excited about it. So, you know, we started thinking about what, what would we like to do to celebrate uh, Mr. Palmer's 90th birthday. And we thought, you know, we don't want it to just be a one-day celebration. He he deserves more than that. How can we celebrate his life in a bigger way? And uh, came to the idea of, of uh, using the 90-day period leading into his birthday to celebrate some of the amazing moments of his life. And there are, you know, his, his life certainly warrants identifying 90. <laughs> maybe maybe some of us we'd have a hard time coming up with 90, but not not for Arnold Palmer. So. As we got into it and started looking at all the angles that uh, the stories that we could tell, we got more and more excited and started talking to other partners like the PGA Tour and Golf Channel and Sirius XM, and everybody liked the idea and uh, showed support behind it. So one thing led to another, and uh, we launched the campaign during the U.S. Open. That's going to be one moment per day, and it's going to be voiced by CBS's Jim Nance, and they're going to air on PGA Tour Radio which is on Sirius XM, and you're right. There are so many incredible moments in Arnold's life that you could actually come up with 90 per year when, when you look back not only on his accomplishments on the golf course but, but certainly off the golf course. And I, I, I think that 
it's going to be a great combination of uh, focusing on on his tournament wins, which were which were many, but but all the also the impact he had off the golf course with the work he's done in 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 certainly in the Orlando community. Yeah, yeah, and you know and that's the thing. If you were to break down, I mean, just look at so many different aspects of his life. Um, he he was a great man in so many different ways. Like you said, of course, everyone knows he was a champion golfer. But if you look at um, his business career and what he created through Arnold Palmer Enterprises and so forth and Bay Hill and Latrobe, you would say he was a very successful businessman. If you were to look at his pilot career with almost 20,000 hours of flying, you'd say he was a very accomplished pilot, his philanthropy work. And so uh, we're, we're certainly focused on trying to tell the complete story uh, of his life and not not just his golf accomplishments and just for example if you look at the last uh, over the last several days um, I think Monday the, the moment was uh, when he launched or uh, co-launched uh, Golf Channel and the story behind that and there's a interesting story related to that where um, at a crucial moment where they were making the go no go decision on Golf Channel um, Arnold was in a room with his advisors and and frankly. Uh, the way the story goes, was getting a lot of advice that this is too risky, that, that uh, uh, pointing out all the potential um, barriers. And he, his famous quote was, if I hadn't tried to hit it through the trees sometime in my career, none of us would be sitting here. And that was a, <laughs> a turning point <laughs> to say, okay, let's go do this. Um, so, you know, that was Monday. Tuesday was when he toured um, – the hospital here in Orlando, and at the time there was only one floor dedicated to children, um, and there were some 300,000 kids in the Orlando area, and he said, we can do better. And everybody that was with him that day agreed, and that kind of stimulated the, the work to create the Arnold Palmer Hospital for Children nearly 30 years ago. Um, and, uh, you, just, you know, today, the next day was uh, his piloting career, and, and really it started by facing the fear of flying. And then today's golf course design, you know, so there's just, there's so much here to work with. And, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, learning a lot myself as, as I'm only eight months into this job of, um, you know, the stories behind the stories. I've heard a lot of these moments. I've read several of his biographies. I've watched the Golf Channel documentary. But this helps us, um, you know, break it down into short little one-minute one segments um, that allows people to, you know, experience his life, I think, in a pretty cool way. I was so fortunate, John, to partner with Arnold in many tournaments. We played a lot of golf together, and one of the one of the endearing facts of Arnold meeting his golf fans would be when they would come up to him and they would share a story, a personal story, their story, or maybe their father or mother's story, or even a story about something that happened to them in their family when one of their family members went to the hospital, the Arnold Palmer hospital and lives were saved or, or babies were born and i think arnold got more of a kick out of hearing those stories than he would uh winning winning a tournament because i think arnold was so much greater and so much bigger than the game of golf that uh, it warmed his heart to meet so many fans that 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 his life impacted theirs and uh, i want to also mention john that uh, we want everyone to go on to hashtag AP90 for 90 and share your reactions and uh, Arnold Palmer memories uh, because that's really the depth of Arnold and, and uh, who he was. Now, John, obviously you spent your, so many years in, in the game of golf. You were, uh, 
you recently were with the LPGA for about eight years, and you came from the PGA Tour for about 15 years before that in uh, business development. Um, you obviously ran across Arnold many times in your uh, in your previous previous career. So, being in charge now, being the uh, the gatekeeper and the, the key master there at uh, Arnold Palmer Enterprises is uh, is got to be pretty rewarding for you. Yeah, it is. You know, tremendously. I think um, you know. I don't know that there's a a bigger name in our sport. You know, somebody who's had a greater impact in so many different ways. And uh, you know, it's a it's a huge responsibility, and I'm you know really honored to have that opportunity, and and obviously a great team around me to to con- continue to promote his legacy and then continue to build the businesses and foundation you know that he established. So. Um, and like you said, I, I do feel like I've been in the golf business now over 24 years, and um, so I've uh, you know worked with the PGA Tour and the Golf Channel and the USGA and Augusta and um, so forth. So I've got a lot of deep relationships and all those different organizations. And what I find, you know, you alluded to it. One of the one of the coolest parts of the job so far is that uh, virtually everybody you meet has a story about Arnold Palmer um, and the way that uh, he touched them. Um, even if they had not met him personally, they felt like either he winked at them or gave them a thumbs up or just connected with them, um, you know, personally. He had such great uh, respect for people. He had gr- such great rapport. He, you know, took time to sign autographs. He took, I mean, even, you know, well into his life, he was spending a couple hours a day signing letters and signing things that people would send him and returning them. Um, it was a big part of his life up until the time he passed away. So, um, yeah, it's um, all pretty cool. Uh, it's uh, really an honor. Well, John, congratulations on your new position, CEO of Arnold Palmer Enterprises. And I know you've now got one Arnold Palmer Invitational presented by MasterCard under your belt, which uh, uh, you joined the organization, and boom, you had the you had the tournament to take <laughs> care of. So I'm sure you're uh, you're fitting into your role very comfortably, and and uh, I'm a bit jealous. You get to see and work with the Palmer family on a daily basis. I just have such respect and admiration for everybody. So, again, the uh, the 90 for 90 campaign, you can hear it, voiced by Jim Nance on PJ Tour Radio on Sirius XM. John, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Peter. I enjoyed it. It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. The fans are fired up, making sure they show it. I've been a pretty good ball striker my whole career, and I think one of the strengths of my game has always been my driving. Statistically, I hit a lot of fairways, but I always know that my first drive of the day will be a good one in comfort, luxury, and in style because I'm going to and from the golf course in my Lexus GX 460. I've been a brand ambassador of Lexus for over 30 years, and in my opinion, it's the best vehicle on the road today. I may have had a few body parts replaced over the years, but that's just in my 65-year-old body. My Lexus needs nothing but routine maintenance, and that's just the way I like it. The Travelers' Championship in Hartford 
a tournament I know very well. I was very fortunate to win in 84 and again in 2003 at the age of 49, which statistics show that it made me the seventh oldest winner on the PGA Tour, which is hard to believe. I didn't expect to win. I don't think anybody expected me to win, but I was preparing myself for the Champions Tour when I turned 50. But got to Hartford that week, was having a great week, having some fun, and I was leading. And I want to introduce my next guest. She happens to be my middle child, Kristen Saylor. Kristen, you were on hand on that Sunday, that final round, but you surprised me when you decided to show up. Was it a surprise? I don't even remember that, but I believe you. I believe you. Thank you, by the way, for having me here today. It is such an honor and a pleasure to be joining you on your podcast. Thank you, honey. Yes. No, it was exciting to go. I think mom called and told me that you were leading. You know, I unfortunately, I didn't follow golf so close, so I might not have been on top of things, but mom called and said, dad's leading. You're just in college. What else do you have to do? You know, get on a train go to Hartford and and watch the last day. So packed up all my belongings and got on the train and came to meet you. And I'm so glad I did because thank goodness you actually won. You were in you were in uh, college at NYU, New yes. York University, yeah. your undergrad. Studying neuroscience, so I had a lot of free time. You had, oh yeah, it sure sounds like a pretty easy subject. I don't even know how to spell neuroscience. But you jumped uh, at the chance to come down. I think mom had alluded that you might show up or some friends of mine might show up. And actually, another friend did show up. My good friend, Matt Greaser, who is also known as Sign Boy in the Footjoy ads. And also, he is the immature cheese. He's the voice of the immature cheese on the Cheese It ads that we see on television. But you and Matt had a chance to walk the golf course and watch me play and... Specifically, what happened on 17? Do you remember what happened there? I just remember being so excited to watch you going into the last hole or that, you know, second to last hole and you were going to win. And I hadn't had a chance to really talk much to you, but I caught you when you were going in between. And I just remember being so elated and saying, Oh my gosh, Dad, you're going to win. You're going to win. The specifics of it was I was two strokes ahead playing the 17th hole. And I actually hit a beautiful drive, a great iron shot in to about five feet, and I made the putt for birdie to go three strokes ahead. And as I was going to the 18th tee, you ca- I saw you, and I came over to say hi. You broke under the ropes, came up to me, hugged me, and said, Dad, you're going to win. You're going to win. And do you remember what I said to you? Something about a French man. Yes. I said, honey, I'm three strokes ahead with one to one hole to play. Do you remember Jean Vandeveld? And I have no idea who this person is, but it got a huge laugh from the gallery around us. And so I'm assuming he did not win. He was leading the Open Championship at Carnoustie. He had a three-stroke lead on the last hole, ended up making a triple, went into a playoff, and lost that playoff. And when I said to you, have you heard of Jean Vandeveld? It got the big laugh. But then you went, uh, who? And I said, don't worry, there's no water on this hole. I think I'll be fine, which got another laugh. (laughs) And I ended up making a par in winning the tournament. And we had a great celebration afterwards. I was just really excited because I had never seen you win a tournament 
in real life. Before. I didn't win many of them, so uh, you were lucky. <laughs> well, I had this thought when I was young, and I'm talking elementary school young. I had this thought that because every time I was there and you were in contention to win, you never won, I thought that I was a bad luck charm. So that I would turn away when you would have a putt because I believed that if I watched the putt, it wouldn't go in and you would lose. Are you serious? You I am 100% serious. I thought that. And as I got older, of course, I figured out I wasn't a bad luck charm. It was just your short game. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. What's really interesting about being a PGA Tour player father and dealing with kids is very rarely, tour players don't win a lot. You look at the most, the winningest most players in the game, Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Sam Snead. You look at their percentage, it's not very good. And if you can win five, eight, 10, 12 tournaments in a career, that's fantastic. But to do that, you have to have a 20, 25, 30 year career. And if you play 30 tournaments a year, you're talking 600 to 800 wins. So I think sometimes we, as tour players and family, we're always hard, hard on ourselves because we think, oh, I should have won that. I should have won this. Rather than taking stock of, wow, I was lucky to win that. I was lucky to win this tournament here. So having the chance to win at Hartford for two times, that was my second time, at the ripe old age of 49 and a half with you in attendance was really special. I think it was actually Matt Greaser who told me to run out onto the green and to give you that you know big hug. I didn't. I didn't have the inclination to do that. I'm not necessarily a person who likes that kind of attention. But Matt was next to me, and he was nudging me and going, you know, run out there, go. And I said, I, I want to run out there. You know, I was wearing sneakers, and a, you know, I was a college kid. And then I think Matt said, I mean, what? He's 49. You think this is going to happen again? <laughs> well, to set the scene, I putted out on 18, and I won the tournament. And I turned, and I really was in shock myself, and I didn't have much of a, you know. Tiger Woods fist pump type thing. I just turned, and the minute I turned around, boom, I was hit with this freight train of my daughter, Kristen, and you jumped into my arms, and that picture made the front page of the paper in Hartford, and we've got it here on the wall, and it is great because you've got a striped skirt You've got polka dot socks. You've got red Converse shoes. It's a very early 2000s look. It's a good it's a good fashion choice. And what makes me even happier about being on the cover of all these newspapers was that, of course, they need to have the face of the winner, which is you. And so I was hugging you. And so all of the shots are actually just of my rump <laughs> hugging you. And for a body conscious 20-something, that was really lovely to be splashed on the front page. But in all seriousness, it was the coolest thing. I've never been in another newspaper. That's my only front page cover. I mean, there's a lot of life to live. Maybe I'll have another. But I I was pretty appreciative to get that one, but even the, if it was of just my butt. But the outfit was, was classic. Very college. golf appropriate. Very golf appropriate. <laughs> Very golf appropriate. I think actually we could bring back that look. We could come out with a new golf clothing line Long striped sh striped skirts and red Converse. I think that could be a new look for a lot of the LPGA women. Well, I expect you to go to the LPGA Tour School and wear that when you get your card. Well, how about how about we do that for Daphne? How about okay. your granddaughter? Because she might have a little more athleticism than than I do. Okay. So to finish up this story, at the end of the evening, we went into the clubhouse. We had a great celebration, food, 
some alcohol, some adult beverages, and the winner of the tournament was given a limo ride back to the hotel. And the people, Ted May and everybody with the Greater Hartford Open, knew you were there. They knew you were down from New York. So I said... And we had slummed it on Amtrak. And you'd that's right. Did you pay for your ticket or did you sneak on? Snuck on, of course. Snuck on, of course. Yeah, typical college college days. So they offered, they said, Peter, why don't we just eliminate your limo ride back to the hotel and we'll give Kristen a ride back to NYU, which they did. Mm -hmm. And you felt pretty special. I mean, how could you not? You know, you get a limo ride. I think they gave us a bottle of champagne as well. And I had I had brought my boyfriend at the time, and so the two of us felt like we were, you know, Beyonce and Jay-Z in this limo going back to New York City. It was, again, next to being on the front page, it was like, now I get to ride a limo all the way back to college. It was an unfortunate return to reality when they dropped me off outside of NYU, and it was just like a pile of garbage bags and my little, you know, tiny closet-sized apartment to go back to. But for that one-and-a-half-hour, two-hour drive... I was the queen of New York. Were you were you diving into the liquor cabinet in the limo? Oh, or? of course not. Of course we didn't touch anything, Dad. I would never. Maybe a little bit. Okay. Well, I'm learning more about that as you get older and as you start having kids, of which you have two, you're starting to realize where all this gray hair came from. Having three kids and realizing years later that you did actually sneak out of the house in high school. So that's something we're going to have to talk to about after this podcast. Kristen, thank you for joining us. This has been great reminiscing over a great win, and I'm glad you were there. I am so glad that we spent this time together, and I'm glad that you now know the reason that you didn't win more was because I was your bad luck charm all those years. Not at all. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Jake's Takes podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Jacobson. These have been my takes. What are yours? 